We continue on in Job, a walk through reality. Uh, This week I call it a cry of agony. Uh, And it's hard to watch pain and suffering, at least if you're normal. It's hard to watch pain and suffering. Uh, I remember a few years ago uh, in a college basketball game, I think it was close to the end of March Madness. I believe the player was for Kentucky. Uh, He landed wrong and he broke his leg, but the bone just kind of popped out. And I see some of your faces already saying, it's disgusting. His his leg snapped. I didn't see it live. Of course, it was recorded. And of course, people want to show you. Um, I still remember watching it. And no matter who watched it, you were affected in some way. Uh, I still, when I talk about it, it makes me sick to my stomach. It's just one of those breaks that you just think, how in the world can they put Uh, someone back together again after that break. Uh, Or watch a mom when their child experiences pain and they're physically feeling uh, that pain. And I use moms because dads are usually a little more heartless, but the moms definitely feel the pain of the child. If you need sympathy, kids, go to mama. Um, Or read about the persecution of different people uh, through history. And I know this is, as my kids are studying history, it's, it's, as a parent, it's wonderful because you actually start learning history. You're like, wow, why didn't we learn this in school? And I'm sure that they maybe taught us in school and we forgot it, but you're learning it again like the first time. But you read about some of the persecution that people went through. And I actually enjoy this. I see a passion in my kids and, and in, in my own heart. You feel for them. Uh, you, you almost get angry that this took place to people. You start feeling a passion for justice. And we're talking about the past because when we read and see agony, it affects us. Well, this morning, we're going to encounter one of the darkest chapters in Scripture, actually. A cry of agony from Job, uh, who's in the depths of despair and hurt. And it will and should affect us. Now, just to catch ourselves up, I think it's always important in the book of Job. We're about to enter after this a chapter, we're going to go into a long portion of dialogue as Job wrestles with this and his friends give bad advice that sounds good. And Job says some great things, but also some terrible things. And so we're going to balance back and forth through the dialogue. We need to understand where we are. Uh, we know a few things from the first couple chapters. Uh, we know God is in control and Satan can only operate within the divine permission. Satan had to get permission to inflict what he did on Job. We also know, though, that evil powers opposed to God are active in the universe. We recognize that Satan did come in and is the accuser of the brethren. And that when God said, have you seen Job? He says, oh, he only serves you because of what you give him. And so we we recognize that. And then this is really critical. We know that all of this tragedy is being done to a human being. It's an actual person. This is no fairy tale or folklore. This is not an invented story to make a point. This is truth. This was a person. This happened to someone. And because of that, we're driven to engage with it. Because let's be honest, if this was just a story, we all would say at the end of reading it, Al was a good story, made their point. But because it's real, we're forced to interact in a specific way, because it happens to a believer who's marked as righteous and we can't find that reason, so to speak, outside of the first two chapters, we're forced to walk with Job through this. As one writer notes, the book of Job is an enormously practical book. It is facing up to the existence of dark, sinister, cosmic forces which are opposed to God and to his gospel. It reminds us that it's not all easy and that it's all not going 
perfectly in that sense, that there is sin and destruction and pain in this world. To understand it more than theology is needed, though we do need that. More than clear thinking is needed, although that is necessary as well. But above all, courage, faith, and open and teachable spirits are needed as we explore this great book together. As we walk uh, through the chapters that are unfolding, as we walk through chapter 3, you have to have an open and teachable spirit. You have to be willing to listen. And you have to be willing to look at pain and what that looks like. So we come back to the real life of Job again. Where is he? He's sitting on a rubbish heap. He's outside of the city where they burn trash or get rid of junk, possibly looking around at what he used to own, but no longer. He's expelled because of his disease from normal interaction. He's not allowed in town. He's not out there because he's trying to show that he's sorry. He's out there because he can't come back to his house and he's not allowed back in town. He's expelled because of what he's facing physically. He's argued with his wife about the core of faith and trust in God, and she's left. He's staring alone now, and I want you to recognize this time frame for months with no one to comfort or talk with him. Staring off into the distance, maybe remembering life as it was, maybe thinking of lost children and favorite memories, but oh, so painfully alone. And we read from one to two, and we think that he lost his kids and everything he had that afternoon, had an argument with his wife, and by that evening, the friends show up. And what I want you to realize is he lost everything in a fell swoop. He's argued with his wife, and he's been sitting alone on a trash heap for months now. That's all about the change, though, with the arrival of friends. That's the end of two. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that was come upon him, they came every one from his own place, Eliphaz, the Temanite, and Bildad, the Shuite, and Zophar, the Namathite. For they had made an appointment together to come to mourn with him and to comfort him. And when they lifted up their eyes afar off and knew him not, they lifted up their voice and wept, and they rent every one his mantle and sprinkled dust upon their heads toward heaven. So they sat down with him upon the ground seven days and seven nights, and none spake a word unto him, for they saw that his grief was very great. Now, in our world, when tragedy strikes a loved one, when an accident occurs, we hear of it immediately and normally drop what we're doing. We even have time to coordinate with other people, and we get quickly to that person. And we're able to do that. We have to be careful, though, to not project our technology and our speed upon Job's ancient world. It would have taken weeks, if not months, for the friends to hear of Job's calamities. It would have taken time to coordinate their visit. And I want you to notice something here. They coordinated their visit. So we all live in different places. They could have heard about Job's calamity and left and gone to visit Job. Instead, they wrote to their other buddies and said, hey, you're going to go visit Job? And then someone has to send a message, and that message has to come back, and we have to coordinate it. Notice that they arrive at Job together. So they had a, 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 a renaissance point, a reunion, and then they went off to see Job. That takes time, and then it takes time to travel there. All of this time encompasses months of suffering and loneliness, I want you to remember that when we ended last week, he's told his wife, I will not curse God and die. And she's saying, curse God and die. And she leaves. She's not covered in boils and and wasting away death. She's not been expelled from town. 
And she's not on the rubbish heap with Job. She's back. And he is alone. He is out in the elements, removed from society, racked by physical pain. And understand this, it's not just an itching skin disease. It is a wasting away disease. The skin is a manifestation of what's taking place in his body. He's dying and he can feel it. On top of that, I want you to recognize the mental anguish and torture that he's going through. As we embark on the next chapters and the book of Job, what he's dealing with is circumstances, but it is his mental pain. This is the psychological torment that he's walking through, the expression that takes place. Job is not just, and I say that word, just physically dying. His heart is broken. His soul is tortured. He's depressed. He's anxious. He can't have any escape. He has no release. He can get no rest. I hope I'm giving a good picture of what he's feeling like in his head. But into this dynamic walk his friends, a dynamic that they've perpetuated to some degree by taking their sweet time to get there, yet a dynamic they enter with good intentions. I want you to understand something about the word friend here that's used. Uh, We have friends, and again, our technology allows us to be friends with the whole world, right? Find someone that likes the same dog as you in another country, and you can be friends with them, right? And you can talk about the dog and say, I have a great friend in Germany. That's impossible, but either way. um, Sorry, Cody. I can't help but make digs on Germans. Uh, Cody's German. I just want you to know that. I like to isolate people and make sure they're seen, uh, you know, for who they are. Uh, Spy among us. Um, But either way. Sorry, it's too too much, too too tempting. But talking about real friends now, not those Facebook friends, real friends, they've made a covenant. They've made a promise to each other. And the word in Hebrew is more than just, that's my buddy with common interests. These men have covenanted together for love and loyalty. The whole idea that you have a friend that sticks closer than a brother that concept, that's woven into the word in Hebrew. These are people who have vowed to be his family, to be more than family to him. And these men have come to empathize with Job, to mourn with him, that's empathy, and to bring comfort to Job and don't miss their purpose. They have come to mourn, empathize, and they have come to comfort Job. Now, empathy is entering into the feelings and experience of the sufferer. It is their desire to mourn with him. Empathy is seen somewhat in the coming to be with him, in the tearing of the clothes, the scattering of the dust, and the sitting with him, though sadly all of their empathy has a tint of selfishness to it. We can see their empathy and see it in their company and sitting with Job on the rubbish heap. I'm sure they would have preferred to stay at the Hilton or Marriott than roughing it in in the rubbish heap outside of town. But they were there on the rubbish heap. But I want you to realize something. Empathy was not the sum of their purpose, nor should it be as a godly friend. It definitely didn't fulfill the purpose as a covenant friend. It's important to note that they also came to comfort. And comfort is more than empathy. Empathy can sit silent. Empathy can be passive and inarticulate. Because empathy is entering in with the sufferer and suffering with them. It's walking into the loneliness and feeling the loneliness of them. It involves, though, when you look at comfort, it's more than empathy. 
To comfort means you are engaged. It is action and it is articulation on their part. It involves engaging with the sufferer to help carry them forward. It's not to just be sympathetic in their suffering. I'm going to give an illustration. It's not a perfect one, but it's, it's, a, it's a way to describe this. So uh, as of uh, last Sunday, I was wearing a sling because I'm supposed to wear a sling, uh, but the doctor gave me permission, at least in my mind, to stop. And so I've stopped the last two days. Um, but let me give a visual illustration. After my fall, my Uncle Rich called me. Now, my Uncle Rich took a fall when he was my age, a much worse fall, um, and, and hit his head. So he calls me and he, he wants to talk to me about my fall. And he was very empathetic. He's in North Carolina. He called me. He asked me how I was feeling and what happened and how bad my shoulder was. And then he said to me, oh, Kenny, you're gonna have to stop talking because you're making me sick to my stomach with how much pain. I, he said, I feel sick for you. And I recognized in that call from my uncle, it's empathy. And it was very nice. It was very kind of him to do that. But when I got off the phone with Uncle Rich, I felt the same pain. Nothing had changed in how I was feeling. What is comfort? Comfort is when Heather uh, helps me put the sling on my arm. Every time she did, she would say, is it high enough? Is it holding your arm up? Is it taking the pressure off your shoulder? Is it keeping it secure enough? That's comfort. Comfort is not saying, ooh, I feel icky with you. That's empathy. Comfort is actually engaging with the sufferer and saying, I'm going to... To be empathetic, you cannot be a comforter without empathy. However, you're going to come in and actually make a difference. You see, comfort involves healing. It is active. It cannot be passive. It is articulate. You have to hear it. Yes, if you comfort, you empathize. But just because you empathize does not mean you bring comfort. And sadly, these good intention guys brought no comfort to the sufferer. It was negated by their bad execution. Good intentions, bad executions. There is a coordinated but delayed visit. Yes, coming together could bring more comfort, but really it was more comfortable for them. Hey, let's go visit him. He's depressed. Ooh, let's have someone go with us because he's depressed. And we need someone to talk to that's not depressed. Let's get three of us to go. And then we all be there and it won't feel as bad for us. And you know, it will be better for him to have three of us. Yes, but the reason you had three is because it meant more to you. It was more comfortable for you to be there. Because guess what? What the friend should have done is heard about his calamity and gone to Job directly. That's what a godly friend does. It doesn't get the entourage together and then show up. If they would have been true godly friends, they would have all showed up there uncoordinated. They would have all been there together because they made a covenant to help and support each other. There is weeping, but it's at him and not with him. You notice when they cry and when they lifted up their eyes afar off and knew him not, they lifted up their voice and wept. It's not the same old Job. It's not the same old relationship. It's not like it used to be. The whole cool group is broken up now. He needs us. They're walking in his territory. These men are wealthy and wise. They can't live next to each other because everyone owns everything around them. So they're coming to what used to be Job and they see an unrecognizable person. And so they mourn the loss of him, not necessarily the losses experienced by him. 
You ever find yourself doing that? You see someone, you say, oh, they're not the same as they used to be. You're not mourning with them. You're mourning because of them. You're mourning what you've lost, not what they have lost. They tear their clothes and throw dust in the air. But guess what? During that time, you used to do that to identify with death, not necessarily help the living. Who's at a funeral, you threw dust in the air. It's basically saying he looks like a dead man to me. He is a dead man to me. I'm sitting with the living dead. Actually, one writer noted this, and, and it's hard to, you know, we're going back ancient times, and so if you're going to look at traditions, we have the book of Job, and it's beautiful ancient literature, but it's not going to be a treatise on all the traditions during that time. But there is, there is some hint of this, that during that time, they would throw dirt in the air to ward off the evil that they're looking at. If you're at a funeral, you're throwing dirt in the air, you're mourning, but the backdrop to it for a lot of people was, I don't want to die. I don't want this to happen to me. And so you'd throw off that toward death and destruction. It's like when people make the cross symbol when they're scared, right? This idea of a, a symbolic gesture to ward off the evil spirits. There is silent companionship, but not for him, instead because of him. Don't miss this. Why did they not speak? For they saw that his grief was very great. And look, it is, it's a wrestling because we think oftentimes, wow, could I sit silently with somebody for seven days? Well, whether you can or can't isn't going to help the grieving, suffering person because silence is like being alone. Job is suffering so greatly they can't bring themselves to speak. He is in physical and mental anguish, and they have nothing to say. We're going to see in their dialogue, it reveals what their silence was all about. See, Job overwhelmed their worldview. This is not how the world works. Job's a good guy. Why is a good guy looking like this? Why is a good guy depressed? Why is a good guy lost everything? Why did he lose his children? Why does he lose his fortune? Why does he lose his health? Why is he losing his mind? Why does his soul in torture? This picture ruins how they see the world around them. And so they remained quiet because it threatened their world order. Often it is seen as a kindness. It's patient and it's loving and it's love on display. But, but is it maybe some silence, but not a whole week of silence? You know that you would do for the dead during this time and actually on into uh, uh, into the Hebrew tradition as well. When somebody died, you would mourn for them for a week. When Saul, King Saul is killed, the people during the, what would be connected to him more towards his hometown or, or see him as king, they mourn for him seven days because their silence was not to encourage or comfort. It was an expression of loss. Not his loss, their loss. We've lost Job. He's done for. He's dead. As one writer notes, this was not a silence of sympathy. It was a silence of bankruptcy. They have nothing to say to bring him comfort. It seems it is too late for that. Christopher Ash reflects this. The friends only press home Job's loneliness as never before. And I hope we can see something from the friends. And look, I'm going to dive into a little bit of their background as they start speaking in the next um, in the next chapters, we're going to hear them start talking. Uh, they move from awkward silence to awkward advice. Uh, they don't get any better as comforters uh, when they start talking. But I hope we can see some things. Suffering is often lonely. 
And there's an overwhelming sense of isolation. Job is lonely. Uh, He is the extreme picture of suffering. And so we're given a painting that we can identify with. We can look at him and look, he's going through it all from physical torture to mental anguish. He is, he's walking through this. There's only one other person that suffered more than Job, and that was Jesus Christ and suffered more unjustly than Job. And so he's sitting there, and I want you to recognize something. The sufferer is lonely and is overwhelmed with a sense of isolation. If we can recognize that truth, then when we're called to walk through it ourselves, we recognize what we're facing. But even more importantly, as brothers and sisters in Christ, when we watch someone walking through this, we know that we can come alongside and actually comfort and alleviate loneliness as we journey with those in the church. I wrote this, don't be a godly friend of just good intentions. Be a godly friend with great execution. The friends, this little, little introduction to them is to help prod us forward into seeing the pain of a sufferer and the need for the church to come alongside the sufferer, not just to sit there in silence and say, I feel your pain, but instead to engage and to be active and to be vocal in healing. We're going to see them get vocal, but not in healing. Thankfully, uh, though, every believer today, whenever they walk through suffering or walk with someone in their suffering, can know that Christ walked that road of loneliness before us. I mentioned the whole uh, garden scene, right, before we talked about the sorrow, the agony he faced. Uh, What happens in the garden? His disciples fall asleep. What happens in the garden? He's betrayed by his people, by the nation of Israel. What happens after the garden? He's murdered for political positioning. That is the main reason behind the priest. They're frustrated with what he's going to do and he's going to ruin their good gig. And so he is murdered for that. He prayed alone. He went to the cross and ultimately faced the agony of separation from God the Father. And that's why he cries in anguish on the cross. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Mark 15, 34. And in most translations of scripture, you get the the Aramaic version, the Hebrew version before that, just to emphasize how powerful of a statement this was. He, Christ, has journeyed before us through the worst. So where Job's friends fail, and let's be honest, where we fail and are failed by others, Jesus never fails. And where we cannot reach or feel we can be reached, Jesus always does. But I want to make, and that sets up, That's the reality. Christ always is there. But that's not how Job is thinking. That's not how we think oftentimes, right? In pain and suffering, when you're walking through it, you're not always thinking, well, Christ had it worse than this. You're usually thinking, I'm dying in this. I can't make it. I'm lonely. I'm isolated. I need rest. I need reprieve. That's how Job is. So after seven days of silence, Job is the one who talks. And we get a crystal clear picture of the agony of Job. Now, chapter three, and I want to kind of walk through it and then we'll then a little bit of background and then we'll kind of walk through the verses together as we have time. Uh, Job speaks honestly here. And I want you to note that Job is being honest in chapter three. His friends sit in awkward silence. He is now speaking in an honest way. He sounds different than chapter one and two. I want you to realize something. Uh, in the Christian walk, oftentimes we grab the Job of 1 and 2, and then we, 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 we transplant Job 1 and 2 
over top of all suffering. We say, look at Job. You know, when it happened to him, he trusted God and let it go. Well, yeah, one and two in comparison to three through 42 is a huge difference. And, and so this is reality. That's why it's a walk through reality. And the Job of one and two was Job, but the Job of three is also Job. And, and Job feels differently. Now, it's important to note and important to realize that God has not changed. It's only how Job feels about God. God, in chapter 3, feels distant or absent to Job. Yet Job speaks with sincerity here that ultimately opens the door for healing and growth. We must understand this in chapter 3. Job is not committing some gross sin here. How do we know that? Through the rest of Job, the bulk of it, Job is telling his friends, I'm innocent. If chapter 3 was some gross sin, then Eliphaz would have said, I just heard what you said a minute ago. You're a sinner. That's the gross sin you committed. And I want you to recognize that God doesn't come down swooping in, reprimanding Job as he expresses the pain that is in his heart. He's not committed a sin deserving of this particular punishment. This is not a direct correlation. That's the argument Job's going to make for many chapters. And the argument from the friends is, yes, you did. Yes, you did. Yes, you did. Because that's their worldview. Do good, get good. Do bad, get bad. Totally missing the reality of this world. He ends up saying, I wish none of my life would have happened. That's what Job says. I don't want you to miss this, and I'll say it multiple times. Job is not suicidal because Job still has faith in God. He's still wrestling with it. He's not going to take his fate into his own hands. Look, we, we've walked through the battle with people. And suicide is, is what you can see that the heartbreak, not just in the loss, is you know that that person at that moment lost hope. It doesn't mean that person is hopeless. Because when we're in Christ, what do we know? No matter what we feel, Christ is still there. Um, but Job doesn't want to take fate into his own hands. He's actually yelling at God to take care of business with him. Get rid of me. Take, take me out. And then his absolute restlessness and conversation and petition for an answer betrays Job's hope. He still sees hope in God. But I'll tell you what, this chapter, this agony shatters the shallow and superficial Christianity that always is happy and smiley, doesn't it? The type of Christianity that would have Jesus singing a praise song at the grave of Lazarus, jolly skipping along. What did Jesus do at the grave of Lazarus? He wept. But even more, chapter 3 confronts our guilt and feeling low as believers, There's a book entitled, I'm not supposed to feel like this. The authors state this, it's bad enough that I feel low or anxious, but on top of that, I feel guilty for I ought not to feel low as a Christian. I feel that I ought to be able to cast my cares upon him for he cares for me. First Peter five, seven, and yet somehow I can't. And that's where Job is in chapter three. Job is the believer who thinks to himself, I shouldn't feel this way. I shouldn't be this depressed. I shouldn't feel this anxious. I shouldn't feel this low. I know God. I've worshiped God. I've sacrificed to God. I know all this. You can tell the truth over and over, but Job in chapter three is still feeling low and he's still feeling depressed. In that way, chapter three can be an encouragement as we recognize how low a believer may feel 
And yet it doesn't negate the reality of who God is. Job has marvelously responded in chapters 1 and 2 with a faith that is unbelievable, but we cannot ignore the despair expressed here. We need to recognize something. And a lot of people don't see this, but they they think that Satan stopped in chapter 2. Satan did his worst. It's done. And what you see in chapter 3 is Satan has not stopped attacking. He's taken all of his material possession. He's stolen all of his children. He's made his body a wasteland. And now Satan is striking at Job's heart and soul. Job is attempting, oh, sorry, Satan is attempting to strip all hope from Job. And we find in this chapter and beyond, Job expressing that heart. When you look at Job, you're looking at somebody under attack. Satan's not gone. Even in chapter 3, verse 8, and a lot of your translations may say uh, they are ready to raise up their mourning. Actually, that verse says Leviathan. In Hebrew, it speaks actually to death and evil. Job is saying, let death and evil take over in essence. Uh, Satan's still there. He keeps showing up through the book. But more than that, the evidence of Satan's attack is in Job's painful heart as his soul is pressed down by him. But yet, In the midst of this darkest chapter, there are facts that give hope and show faith. But we need to walk through this and grapple with the pain Job feels before looking at the silver lining. So into the silence, Job speaks and he begins with a curse. And I'm looking at my watch and I'll go as fast as I can. But you might get hungry. That's all I have to say. So um, after this, and that's talking about the seven days, opened Job his mouth and cursed his day. And I'll kind of just talk through the verses for the sake of time. And Job spake and said, let the day perish wherein I was born. And I want you to know from here to 10, Job is fixating on the day of his birth and the day of his conception. And he's fixating on those two days because he's asking God to do something that cannot be done. But he's speaking metaphorically in this sense. He's saying, I want you to take that day and remove it from the calendar and never let it come back. I want you to erase my existence. It almost could be the premise to a sci-fi movie in an alternate universe as it's going on. He's almost in that sense saying, get rid of this day. Make me never to have existed. Nihilistic in his thinking. Not completely there, but, but that's where he's leaning. Let the day perish when I was born and the night in which it was said, there is a man child conceived. Let that day be darkness. And, and he is literally counteracting what, Christ, uh, what God said at creation. Let there be what? Light, And he's saying, no, let there be darkness. Let not God regard it from above. And the whole idea is God created each day. So don't create my day. Leave my day alone. Make it not happen. Neither let the light shine upon it. So as the light comes, it becomes a reality. Don't let my my day become reality. Let darkness and the shadow of death stain it. He's, and, and this is all poetry, and it's all building on this one concept. Destroy the day of my birth and conception. Let a cloud dwell upon it. Let the darkness of the day terrify it. As for that night, let darkness seize upon it. Let it not be joined unto the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Don't add it to the calendar. Don't put it in February. I was born November. Don't put my day in November. I remove November 27th from the world. I want it gone. I want it to never have showed up. Lo, let that night be solitary. Let no joyful voice come therein. It's just, I don't want sounds of rejoicing. I don't want happy because there's a baby born. 
Let them curse it that cursed the day. Now he's speaking to people who engaged in witchcraft, the people who worshiped evil, who sought for Satan. Satan's always have his followers through the years, through the centuries. There's always somebody connected to the dark and the evil. And he's saying to them, go ahead and curse that day. Make it evil. Who are ready to raise up their mourning. And the word for mourning there can be Leviathan. Leviathan represents death and evil. Let them have this day. Let it be a dead and evil day. Let it be dark. Let that Satan, that adversary, have it. I don't want nothing to do with it. Let the stars of the twilight therefore be dark. Let it look for light but have none. Neither let it see the dawning of the day. In other words, when light is fading and when light is coming in, let no component of light enter this day. Why? Because it shut not up the doors of my mother's womb, nor hid sorrow from mine eyes. He's saying, get rid of this day, because this day let me be born. And because I was born, I walk through torture now. I don't want the memories. I don't want the life. I don't want anything. There's nothing I want to hold on to. Get rid of this day. He wants the day of his birth and conception to be removed from the calendar. He wants to walk back creation for his day He wished it never had come into existence. And as I mentioned, it's in contrast to what God did. Let there be light. He's saying, let there be darkness. Job is bothered by the turmoil of life. He is restless. And though his words are drastic, that wrestling gives us a little glimpse of hope. Because he's not actually given up because he's still wishing for things. I wish I didn't exist. A depressed person who's given up hope doesn't wish for anything. And he's not acted upon his desperation. Job wishes to never have been, but does not take matters into his own hands. But that in no way provides a segue to a hope-filled end to this chapter. Instead, Job moves from cursing his existence. And I want to make a really important note. He's cursing his existence. He is not cursing God. He's begging for God to remove him and his day. This, just wipe it from the calendar. He wants the pain to have disappeared. you see that? See, when you wish for death, and he's going to wish for death at the end of this, but here he's wishing that he never had to walk through what he walked through. And I know when people are facing pain and hurt and sorrow and sadness, that that is a desire that pops up. See, Job speaks to the reality of what hurting people walk through. And they say, I really would rather not walk through that. I don't want to have to do that. And then you got to remember Christ in the garden. And what did he say? If this cup can be removed, remove it. I don't want to walk through this. I don't want to have that forsaken by the Father. And yet he does for our sake. And, and I, I say all that because I want you to realize he curses existence, but he never curses God. He doesn't do what his wife says, and he doesn't do what he's accused of by his friends. Uh, but he does go on to a lament. This is 11 through 19. It's really in two parts. I'll read the first part, 11 through 15. Why died I not from the womb? Why did I not give up the ghost when I came out of the belly? In other words, why didn't I just die right when I was born? Why did the knees prevent me or why the breast that I should suck? For now should I have lain still and been quiet. I should have slept. Then had I been at rest. And don't miss how many times he talks about being quiet, being still and being at rest. With kings and counselors of the earth, which build desolate places for themselves, or with princes that had gold who filled their houses with silver. And he starts off saying, if I had to be born, why could I not have died as a baby? 
And that movement from knees, which would have been his father's knees, he'd been born and would have been on his father's knee, onto the idea of nursing, looks at the sustenance or the start of life. If you, uh, at least when we were in the hospital having babies, you, you have the baby and you want the baby to be healthy. And then what is the next biggest concern on everyone's mind is the baby eating. Because the baby needs to eat to be sustained. And that's the biggest concern that comes up. And, and Job is writing poetically, why in the world did my dad catch me and sustain me and not just let me fall to the ground and be dead? And then why in the world did my mom feed me? Why did I, why did I start life? I didn't want to start life. And he longs for the rest that is found in death. He's desperate to find rest from the weight of this life and its unanswerable question, Why? I can't handle the weight of the why. I can't explain my suffering in light of Christ. I can't explain my suffering in light of God. It doesn't make sense to me. And chapter three is an agonizing why, and it's also a longing for a friend. Because what Job is saying is, I can't see God, who was my friend, who was who I worshiped, and I, I can't find him. And he's saying, I want to I die. I don't want to be here. And he's thinking out loud. Why not be dead and with everyone else that has died before me? Because no one's measuring wealth or sorrow in the grave. That's what he's saying. Why does he say he want to be with kings and counselors and princes with money? Kings and counselors who build places that end up in ruins. Because in the end, what he's saying is whatever you do in this life will end up not mattering, so to speak. Nihilistic again, this kind of desperation flavor. Because the fact is, in the end, everyone dies and Job is just wanting to get to the end. The reference of rich highlights the reality of death for all. There's equality in death. He continues his lament. It doesn't change. It just switches form a little bit. Or as in hidden, untimely birth. And that means, I wish I was a stillborn. So if I couldn't have died after I was born, why couldn't I have been born dead? I would have not been. As infants which never saw light. And look, if, if, if you've walked through this pain... And I've watched a brother walk through this pain twice. A stillborn baby is one of the most painful, painful things to walk through. It's horrible. But Job's saying, I, I would rather never existed. I wish I never, my eyes never saw light. I would have been in the womb alive and dead when I came out. And then he says something, there the wicked cease from troubling and there the weary be at rest. What he's saying is even horrible people can't bother people anymore when they're dead. And it says that, there at least the oppressed people find rest. There the prisoners rest together. They hear not the voice of the oppressor or the jailkeeper. So I am freed. If I'm a slave, then I'm free. In death, I'm free. You can't tell me what to do anymore when I'm dead. It's over. The small and the great are there. Again, that equality in death. And the servant is free from his master. What is he saying here? He now identifies with the weary and the servant. First, it was kings and counselors and princes. And now he's saying, I want to be with those who are weary, those who are servants, because in death, the wicked can no longer act. The prisoners rest with no sound from the oppressor. He ends again with the equality in death and the freedom it brings to the servant. Death is always savored by those who are depressed and suffering. And Job is depressed and in mental anguish here. As you read and see him, I want you to recognize, uh, because we are so physical in how we think, even all my illustrations of agony, right? They were all physical. A guy broke his leg. A child hurt himself. 
and you feel that physical pain. And what is hard for us at times is to shift and recognize the weight of mental anguish because most of Job is mental anguish. It is him wrestling with the uncomprehensible. He actually doesn't talk about how painful his body feels over and over again. He's going to reference it, but he's dealing with the mental side of this. He's depressed. And so he looks at death and he sees death as justice because death brings order. You may be above me in life. You may be wicked and oppressing me. I may be your servant and you may be my master, but when we're dead, you are not my master anymore. Order has been restored. The wicked no longer can do their wickedness. And that longing for that rest is Job's cry for order. That's what his lament is saying. He wants reason to return. Rest would find life existing in its proper place with proper boundaries. It would bring everything back to the worldview that he, his friends have and that he oftentimes had as well. Good is rewarded, evil is punished. He's saying, I want things back to what it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be how God saw it as good. There's supposed to be justice where good is rewarded and evil punished on earth. And what he has found, because he's wrestling with this worldview and wrestling with this tension, is he's saying, well, at least in death, it's all restored to what it's supposed to be because you're not rich when you're dead and you're not a servant when you're dead. There's equality. But that is not Job's reality. So he ends by pondering a painful question. This is 20 through 26. He's switching. I want you to note this. He asks a question in 20 and asks a question in 23 that are the same question. Wherefore is light given to him that is in misery? And I want you to realize the word given is important because that's him actually tipping his hand to realizing God is in control because somebody gives life. And who gives life? God gives life. And then he says it in 23, why is light given to a man whose way is hid? And so he's in a, here he's tipping the scales a little bit. Here it goes. Wherefore is light given to him that is in ministry, misery, and life unto the bitter in soul. And, and by the way, in this question, Job is expanding because wherefore is light given to him is singular in Hebrew. And then when he goes on to life under the bitter in soul, it's actually lives that are bitter in soul because he moves to everyone who suffered unjustly. He is now encompassing the whole picture. He's going beyond himself. And he's basically saying, when he looks at this, why, why, why even live if it's going to be miserable? Why live if you're going to be bitter in soul, which long for death, but it cometh not, and dig for it more than for hid treasure, which rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they can find the grave. And as Job expands his focus, he starts talking about everyone that feels like him. Why do those who face incomprehensible sorrow a loss of a child, a loss of hope at all, continue living. Why did God have them live at all? That's his question. Then we get the analogy of treasure and Job is painting a picture of people like him. And he's saying, what we're doing is we're searching for gold, but our gold is death. We are digging and hunting death like a treasure hunter seeks for gold. And so we have the same fervor and whenever you read about those gold strikes and people get gold fever and they will take ridiculous risk and, and ridiculous adventures just to get gold, Job is trying to, to bring that to bear. That's how desperately we don't want to be alive. That's how hungry we are to escape this. And then verse 23 is a repeat of wonderment. But why be given life at all if misery is your fate? He goes on. Um, 
Why is light given it to a man whose way is hid and whom God hath hedged in? And you remember what Satan accused God of doing, hedging Job in. And now Job is saying, God is hedging me in, but it's the reverse. So before it was a hedge of protection. It was to keep things out. And now Job is saying to God, you're keeping me in. I want to die. Let me out. Let me out. Let me out. Stop oppressing me. Stop focusing on me. And he'll say that again later on in Job. He says, for my sighing cometh before I eat and my roarings are poured out like the waters. And, and what you're looking at here is sighings is tragedy. And it says, my tragedy comes in place of food. And then roarings is the word for groanings, also tragedy. It says, my, my groanings, my tragedy comes like a flood of water. This is a verse that is always eerie to me. For the thing which I greatly feared has come upon me, and that which I was afraid of is come unto me. Job sacrificed for his kids just in case they might have cursed God. He brought them there. He taught them this. They, they, were, they were as righteous as you could possibly be. We know that. He was blameless. He was upright. He was perfect. This is God's description of him. But he talks about a fear he had. His fear was losing everything, losing his children. And he's saying, it's now with me. My worst fears have become reality. Loss of children, complete isolation, physically wasting away, blessings all gone, mental anguish, crushing depression. That's what he feared, and it's there now. And then verse 26 wraps it up. I was not in safety, neither had I rest, neither was I quiet, yet trouble came. And what he's saying is, I've not been at ease, because when you have no safety, you can't relax, right? If you're worried about someone breaking in, you're sitting up there waiting for them to open the door, right? He, he, I can't relax. I can't rest. I have no, no rest. I can't sleep. I have no quiet, but I do get the opposite. I get trouble. And that word for trouble is torment. Torment has come in the place of rest. And he's speaking of torment of his soul. Of course, he's talking about the physical side, but what he's emphasizing is, I can't let my mind even rest. I am tormented here. Job ponders the question, why is light or life given and in the very asking of that question, Job points to God, the giver of life, whom he has found to be absent. But as one writer notes, even in God's felt absence, he is somehow there. And I want you to realize that Job does not feel that God is there. But Job, in, in his question, is saying to every one of us, he knows God is there. He doesn't feel like God is there. And what we can start seeing is that there's a separation sometimes in what we feel and what is true. Job still knows the truth. He just doesn't feel that way. Job is looking to God to erase the day and the pain. That's what he's crying out for. He's asking God to let him die. So even though he feels far from God, he knows God is there and he's actually still talking to God. And we take comfort in that. Why? And I want to go all the way back to the beginning. Job is different than chapter 1 and 2. In 1 and 2, he's, he's close to God and he's connected and he feels that closeness. In chapter 3, he feels, and I'm emphasizing, he feels distant from God. But I said this on purpose. God hasn't changed. See, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he is the God that will not forsake us. So even when life is the darkest and we cannot seem to see the reason, 
And I'm going to add this, when we don't feel like God is there, when we don't feel like trusting him, when we don't feel like praying to him, we don't feel like reading about him, we don't feel like hearing about what he's done for us, when we don't feel a certain way, it has not changed where God is. He's still there. When we don't know his light or feel his presence, we can know the reality of a God that is beyond our feelings. And aren't we grateful for that? Because I may not feel right, but God is right. And I may not feel that he is with me, but he's with me. So as we wrap up this scene, and that's really what we're in, friends are there, Job's lament. And as we move on to a dialogue that encompasses the bulk of the book, where friends add to their awkward silence with awkward words, Friends that came to empathize and comfort, but missed the mark and gave no comfort. I want to remind ourselves of this as we look at the scene. Let's be sure to be better comforters than Job's friends. Let's recognize the isolation inherent to suffering, the sense of overwhelming loneliness, and be prepared to act and articulate to connect and help heal it. If Job's friends tell us nothing at the beginning, it's do more than empathize. Do more than say, buck up. I had read one person saying, if the friends would have said to Job, come on, man, buck up. You know God is there. It's like telling someone with one leg to run around the world. That's how unrealistic it is. I say that because we're walking into Job's crushing mental depression, anguish, unanswerable questions. And I want you to realize something. They're going to tell him that. Buck up, man. Take care of business. Repent of your sins. And, And the point is, that's not what anyone needs to hear. They need real comfort, someone to connect and bring healing, to articulate and act on their behalf. And we notice it was Job who speaks. He is the one that breaks the awkward silence as he cried out from the depths of his broken and battered soul. His cry of agony echoes through the corridor of time, letting us see the honest reflections of a truly righteous individual as he walks to the brink of utter despair. Yet in the midst of Job's darkest words, words that, let's be honest, startle and shock us, we find a persistent faith. Job does not curse God, and Job does not take his fate into his own hands. The God he finds so absent is still seen as the giver and sustainer of life. Because remember, he's mad at God in this way, saying, let me die. And what he's proclaiming when he says, let me die, is you're sustaining my life. You give life and you sustain it. Job, in his passionate petition for death and rest, betrays the hope still in him. He wants to know. He still looks to an eternal future, to life and resurrection. And I put as a question, are we still looking for an eternal future? Do we cling to hope in the midst of our darkest times, knowing who holds tomorrow? And I would say this, if Job, the righteous, blameless one, this extreme example of what we should know in suffering, we'll never never see that extent of it. If, if he is at this darkest point, I would say cling to the truth that you can know, not what you feel, the truth you know, and that is that God is with you. And you can know that, and that hope will shine through, maybe faintly, but it's there. And then I put here, are we willing to be uncomfortably honest like Job? Are we willing to grapple with the incomprehensible nature of life Or will we force everything to fit our box? And that's exactly what's going to unfold in the dialogue. The friends are going to say to Job, your life messes up my view. And so I need to remove your life from my view so my view can stay the same. Because man, thinking about your life really troubles me. 
And are we going to do the same thing in our faith? And as we walk through different hurdles and struggles, as we encounter people, are we going to do the same thing? Or are we going to be willing to become uncomfortably honest so that we can actually heal and grow just like Job did? But we know this. Whatever suffering we face, our Savior has faced as well. He's walked this dark and painful road so that he could redeem us. So when the walls seem to close in upon us and God feels to be miles away, we can truly rest knowing that regardless of how we feel, our Savior is constantly by our side through all of life's journey. You may feel like God's not with you, but the promise of Scripture is your Savior walks with you. And the promise of Scripture is your Savior understands everything you're walking through. Let's pray together. And Father, thank for this opportunity we have to come and study your word. And though Job is a difficult book, you place it in your Scriptures so that we can learn from it, that we can, we can walk through reality with Job, recognizing that this world is not our home. We become poignantly aware of that with Job, but that there is hope that you remain the same No matter how we feel, you are with us. We don't run away from you. We may struggle to see you. We may wish that our life didn't exist, but we can know this. Our Savior walked this path. He suffered beyond what we can even imagine, and he suffered for us. And I hope that no matter where we are, whether we're facing a crushing uh, pain and anguish, where we have a hard time seeing your presence, I hope that the reality of who you are will still shine through. And I hope that as we walk with people that may be struggling and and facing suffering that we cannot explain, that rocks our worldview, that makes us a little bit uncomfortable, that we, instead of running away or sitting in awkward silence, would instead engage in comfort and bring the truth, the only truth that matters, that God is the same and that he is there. That is the reality. Help us to live a deep Christian faith and a Christian walk, to not be shallow, but instead know your love at the deepest and the hardest of times. In your precious and holy name, amen.